funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Another episode of the Silver Screen Video with your host, Jonathan and Jacob. Yes, we know we missed last week. Things happened. We didn't want to, but sometimes that's how the cookie crumbles. So you know what? That's life. You get what you get and you don't kiss a pickle, as they used to say. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> kiss a pickle? <laughs> you know don't what? mind okay, if so, I do. So, so I've been saying that saying for years. I don't know where I got it from, right? And there's like several different renditions. You get what you give, you get what you get, and you don't uh, make a fuss or something. So I said that, and everyone looked at me like I was an idiot, so I looked it up. There's literally no origin. I literally think I made it up, and for some reason, all these years, I thought it had an origin, but it doesn't. Yeah, no, that that absolutely came from just inside your skull. That's That doesn't even make sense. Like you get what you get and you don't kiss a pickle. It's like, what? Why would you kiss a pickle? Well, it makes no sense. I think it's streets ahead. And honestly, it's going to catch on at some point. So <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I just want to thank you for not, um, not exposing me. And for the reason that we, um, had to, had to, uh, postpone recording last week. Um, but you know, in the interest of transparency, I, well, I'm not going to tell the full story, but I had, uh, what, I guess we'll call a, a bathroom incident at the M&M store in Times Square. <laughs> so we'll just leave it at that. If you have any questions, feel free to DM us. Um, and I was hoping know. you were going to say you were the person on the flight to Spain that had to turn around because of the mess that was made. Oh my God. Wasn't that such a crazy story? It, oh Jesus, it's disgusting. Just talking about it now is, is nauseating me. Um, Can you imagine like, can you imagine? No, I don't want to talk details, and our listeners don't want to hear it. <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't going to talk details. I mean, can you imagine being that guy? Like, I'm already kind of a shrinking violet sometimes in social situations, like feeling awkward or whatever. Can you imagine being the guy that fucking shit all up and down the plane? Jesus. So much so that they had to turn the plane around. I mean, do you know how many vacations that guy's responsible for ruining? Like... Man, oh man. I mean, that guy. They had to, they had to shut down the M&M store for two days because of you. <laughs> <laughs> Tourists could not get their M&Ms for two days. When I was in New York, I got M&Ms made with my initials on them. I, I, I'll tell you this. When I, when I was younger and I saw the M&M store, for some reason, I was thinking that it was like, all different flavors of M&Ms that I've never had before. You know, this is when you're younger before they had, you know, they had chocolate and then they had peanut, uh, peanut M&Ms, but nothing else. And so I imagined, I was like, Oh man, I bet they have all different kinds of flavors. And it's like, no, no, no. They have all different, all different colors. And that was so disappointing to me. I was just like, that's it. They're just all different colors. Who gives a shit about colors? You know? I agree. I do agree. Also, I've never been a big M&M fan. So what are you going to do? Yeah, that's but, true. Although I will say, peanut butter M and M's, you know, the the orange package, I do like those. Um, I don't remember them actually, but I'm not a big fan of peanut butter either. So, oh, that's right. 
You're being but, a skeptic, aren't you? Listen, well, I'm not skeptical. I like it sometimes. I'm not like a skeptic. Like, you know, it's it's fine on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but stay out of my desserts. You know, that's what I tell peanut butter. Okay. I strongly like, disagree, but I just but like you know, fruit. it's reasonable. It's like fruit. Don't give me a fucking fruit pie or a fruit salad with some whipped cream and expect me to be like, oh, thank you for the dessert. Fuck out of here with that shit. So wait, what's your what's your kind of desserts of choice then? No peanut Decadence. butter, no fruit. Decadence, dude. Like we need okay. chocolate, chocolate cake, cream cheese frosting, cream cheese in general. I need something rich and sweet and an actual dessert. I've been watching too much Chopped lately, but nothing grinds my gears more than when one of those fucking judges, I'm looking at you, Jeffrey, like puts a look on his face, eating a dessert in the dessert round and has the audacity to complain that it's too sweet. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Too sweet? What the fuck? It's a dessert. Exactly. Exactly, man. It gets on my nerves every time. It's like, if I if Jeffrey's on the episode, I just assume he's going to piss me off in some way. God, I hate Jeffrey, too. I've never seen the show. Um, I cannot believe you've never watched Chopped. You know what? We're, 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 we're getting off track here. Listen. Should we do it? Should we do a whole episode on Chopped? I totally would do a whole episode. I would do a whole fucking bonus series on Chopped. Oh, I'm, God. I'm, I'm pretty close to finishing all 50 seasons. 50? <laughs> so, yes. All right, let's get started. One episode a week. Uh, one episode a week, as two people who are not chefs, we will dissect every dish of every chef <laughs> for every round and decide who we would have eliminated based on the same scoring card the judges uses. Dude, I, I guarantee you there's a podcast exactly like that that has like triple the listeners that we do. <laughs> Hey, I'll tell you this. Our friend over at uh, the Blast Zone podcast, John Drake, uh, he had he had a podcast. He does not still do it, I don't think. I believe it was about the Iron Chef, and I've always thought that's very cool. I don't watch the Iron Chef, but I do love the idea of that. So, hey, man, there's a market for it. Who is the Iron Chef? It's just because, like, when you watch the show, it's just the guy at the beginning announcing it. Is Is he an actual chef? Do we know this? Well, Mark, I think it's Mark Dukakis. Is that his name? Uh, he was the host of the American Iron Chef. But then there's a whole setup for Chef versus Chef and all that. Look, you've done it again. You've completely got me off track. Let's get back on track with movies. Sorry, here, I, didn't, okay? I knew you were such a cooking show connoisseur. I, I do enjoy them, even though I hate cooking. Even No matter how much I watch The Bear and I think cooking looks cool, I know in real life it's not like that. Yeah, it's never like that. They make it look so badass, and then it just... It's just they you do. just chopping carrots in your kitchen alone. It's like I'm watching the bear. They make Carmi look like he's fucking Leonidas getting ready to go fight the Persians. And it's like, <laughs> dude, I want to fucking be a chef. And then it's like, wait a minute. No, it's not. You're just going into this kitchen to be stressed out for no reason while assholes order food from you. So. <laughs> That's great. I saw a, uh, I, I saw this this like meme picture that was like, my compliments to the chef. And it was like, look, he's... He's not a chef. He's fourteen year old illegal immigrant from the Dominican Republic. But I'll give you, I'll give him your compliments. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, yeah, dude, it's. Uh, I don't know. I wish I could cook, but uh, anyway, listen. Just when I thought this year couldn't get any better with movies, we were mm-hmm. just briefly discussing off pod. We've got the new Fincher trailer that dropped. We've still got the Scorsese movie to look forward to, Lanthimos' movie, uh, Napoleon. Just when I thought 2023 was going to be just a great year for movies, it somehow gets better. And I'm not even being sarcastic. 
the one and only Mr. Jeff Nichols is releasing his sixth feature film in two months, and I cannot be more excited. Oh, shit. Okay. It is called The Bike Riders. It is based on a true story about bikers in the 1960s. Has a fantastic cast. I hope I pronounce her name right because I'm a big fan of her. Uh, Jody Cormier. She is from... Uh, I think it's just Comer. Comer? Sorry. I could not I could not remember. Anyway, she's fantastic. I loved her in The Last Duel. And it's got Austin Butler and Tom Hardy. And it looks amazing. Also, clearly Michael Shannon, who has been in every Nichols movie he's made so far. Look, man, look, very exciting. I'll uh, obviously watch it, dude. Take shelter, yeah, man. I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe <laughs> that you just, I don't believe you thought it was exciting. Okay, well, if I'm being honest, I've been disappointed. Like, when Take Shelter come out, I thought Jeff Nichols was going to be, like, just this generational filmmaker. And it's like, no, he just turned out to be a good a good director, you know, which is fine. He's, he's a great director. A great director, dude. Come on. He's a great director. All right. I mean, okay, yeah. maybe agree to disagree, but I just, you know. You know what? You ruined it. I brought up something great, and you ruined it. No, no. I said I was excited and you were like you were like you were mad because I wasn't excited enough. It was cautious excitement. There was no real excitement there. And also I just looked it up. Her last name is Comer. For some reason I thought it was Cormier. Maybe I'm getting her confused with a UFC fighter. Anyway. Yeah, they're easy um, to confuse. <laughs> anyway, it's called the Bike Riders, guys. Look it up. Trailer's awesome. Once again, Tom Hardy's doing a weird voice. Uh he loves him. What can he say? <laughs> folks he loves a weird voice he, he 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 cannot even begin to be bothered to use his regular normal voice which no one has heard in about 12 years now yes no one ha- I, I don't even know you know maybe one day hardy will be normal again you know i, I don't fucking know when he's not fucking playing venom or some shit anyway <laughs> um look i've watched two movies one of which wait what's I- that line in venom where he's like you and you and your company were polluting the environment or something. <laughs> Thankfully, I do not remember. Oh, so it's like it's like a line from the trailer that's really funny, where he's just like the accent is completely it's it's inscrutable. There's I don't even know what he's going for, and he's just like you and your company were polluting the environment. It's like he's trying to do Christopher Walken. Well, I'll tell you this: not only do I not remember, I've seen both of them and still don't remember what you're talking about. So I guess oh, I didn't boy. pay attention at all. I've never so, seen either. Damn. They managed to ruin Carnage, which was like my favorite villain as a kid. Uh, they got Woody Harrelson to play him, and it was awful. Carnage so, is red venom. Is that right? Yeah, but he's also like more psycho, kills kids, and wants to murder everybody and stuff like that. All right. Yeah, he was a serial killer. Anyway, I digress. Listen, I went and saw Bottoms. Oh, it, okay. It by far, not even close. Well, maybe a little close is the best uh, raunchy comedy of the summer. And like mm. it, the only one that holds a candle to it just because I fucking loved it so much. is Joyride. Joyride was hilarious. It's on VOD right now. Anybody looking for a fun comedy with just enough heart to not be annoying. Watch this movie because it's fantastic. Which bodies, bodies or, or, or the other one? Joyride. Neither or not, not bodies, 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 even though it did have her in it. We're talking about bottoms. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> but yes. I'm, I'm way out of, out of connection here. Well, what I said was confusing, and I realized that afterwards. Watch Joyride. It's on VOD. Bottoms is in theaters. It's making good money, which I'm glad about. 
everybody killed it. The movie was really good. I there were so many things I enjoyed about it. Typically, when you have these movies that are more, dare I use the word, woke leaning, they are often a little self righteous and can kind of get lost a little bit and in, in what the movie is actually supposed to do, opposed to what it wants to do. And she did not fall into that trap. She co-wrote this. What is her? I can never remember. It's Rachel something. You like Rachel Sennett? Yeah, Rachel Sennett. She, I'm sorry, this movie kind of cements her, cements her right now as a comic genius, in my opinion, between this, Bodies, 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 and I have not seen her other movie yet, um, Shiva Baby. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. Between this and Bodies, 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 her timing, she is a great young talent, so I, I can't wait to see what she does because this movie was something else. Like it was 90 minutes and I laughed for 90 minutes. I'm not even joking when I say it was a, it was a laugh a minute or more. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Marshawn Lynch was in it as the inappropriate teacher. He was fantastic. So I, uh, yeah, man, I don't know. I mean, this movie was, this movie was just, it wore its heart on its sleeve. It has the girl from the bear in it who I can never pronounce her name correctly. Anyway, she's great in it. Um, Sydney and the bear for anyone wondering. So hmm. anyway, yeah, I'm excited. I, uh, I'm very excited to watch the movie. Love Rachel Senate. Rachel, come on the podcast. Um, yeah, very excited. Gonna watch it. Yeah. So, so highly recommend to our listeners to watch this movie. If it's in theaters near you, go support it. Uh, it, you know, it'll help the little help a 24, maybe make more of these movies. So hmm. anyway, the big one that I watched, the one that I just couldn't wait to bring up is the flash. <laughs> oh, I saw the flash on, uh, on max and I meant to watch it. Dude. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> so the first thing I'll say is some of the people who worked on that movie and the visual effects literally said after the movie released in theaters and got destroyed, I think this movie is going to end up losing like $200 million. <laughs> Jesus. But some of the people that worked in the visual effects department said, hey, guys, if you're watching this and it looks like it was done in a week, it's because it was done in a week. <laughs> like, that's how many reshoots and deleted scenes and all this shuffle that they had to do for this movie. Look, we brought this up before with the other DC movie. It'll never make sense to me. They announced James Gunn was taking over the DC universe when they still had like four movies left to come out and basically said, none of those movies matter. He's completely redoing everything and then are mystified when nobody goes to the theaters to see these movies that no longer matter. Like, <laughs> so I watched this movie. Okay. Just in the first 10 minutes. Okay. There is a baby and a microwave. And I'm giving you no context. You just have to watch the movie. There is <laughs> yeah. literally a baby inside of a microwave. He puts the baby in the microwave to uh, to, to save it, right? Like, Yeah, as I was watching that scene, I remember you telling me that there was a scene going around Twitter a few months ago where a baby was in a microwave. And at that time, I had no context. And now I do. That's what happened. He literally is trying to save all these babies. So he thinks... Like the visual, the, the optics of Ezra Miller, who boy, oh boy, 
Does yeah. that guy have some problems? <laughs> or I don't know what his pronouns are, so I'll just say this person has some problems. Um, this he's putting this, this a baby, sexual predator has some problems. Yeah, we'll say that this cult leader, <laughs> this complete fucking psycho. Allegedly, we don't want to get sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems like the type of person that'll show up to your house with like a hammer and a soup can. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so he puts a baby in a microwave to save it, right? And it's just, dude, I'm sorry. This entire movie is a giant mess. I don't give a shit if James Gunn was taking over the studio or whoever the fuck. This movie, and I, I'm a fan of the director, Andy Muschietti. I think that's how you say his name. I'm a big fan. He did it. He did Mama. He's done some solid movies. I don't know what the fuck is going on in this movie. Like, yeah, I mean, these even, movies aren't really, these movies aren't really directed though in any conventional sense. You know, that's like, true. That's true. <laughs> um, even even Michael Keaton, I was like, okay, maybe I'll get maybe I'll get some Michael Keaton 1989 vibes, and it's like every line felt forced. He even says, like, my favorite line. I mean, clearly any Keaton fan is going to love the line. You want to get crazy? Let's get crazy. He says it in the lamest way. You know what way he says it in? He says it in a way that makes me think, you weren't in the room with any of these people, were you? <laughs> <laughs> you Actually, I'll take that a step further. You filmed this in your house with a green screen on your balcony. <laughs> like, Michael Keaton was on vacation while they filmed, uh, while he filmed his part with an iPhone and then they just filled everything in. But can can I spoil the best part of the movie for you, for you and the listeners? Do you mind? So at the very end of the movie, I think it was the end. I lost track of time. Like for a movie that wasn't even very long, I did check how much was left a few times. Um, At the very end of the movie, they're, they're rolling through different universes. We get to see a few things here and there. For instance, we get to see a CGI Nick Cage fighting a giant spider, like paying oh, homage yeah. to the Kevin Smith screenplay or Tim Burton screenplay. God, this multiverse um, shit will not quit, man. It won't. It won't. But I'm about to. I'm about to. I'm tell you why they should probably put the put the kibosh on it. Um, there is a CGI Christopher Reeves in a suit, man, in a Superman suit. Oh. God, dude. This is the second time a beloved dead celebrity has been brought back in a movie for the sake of the franchise. The other one, which I recently watched, was Ghostbusters. They brought him back at the end of the movie as CGI. Brought who back? Ivan Reitman. Uh, and I just, I didn't don't. Didn't his son direct that movie? He did. Jeez, dude. And also, I'm looking it up. Am I talking about the right Reitman here? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I yeah it's Ivan. Yeah, yeah, Ivan Reitman. Is it Reitman or Reitman? I've always said Reitman. I don't know. I've always said Reitman, but I have no reason to. Either way, I don't have a reason for this thing. Either way, they bring back, you know, the professor. Uh, I forgot his name. I'm not a Ghostbusters guy, so sorry. But anyway, he plays. he played the uh, the doctor of the group or whatever. I don't know. I could be, you know... I, it's one of the people in the group that's dead. They bring him back at the end of the movie as a CGI ghost. And it is awful. So Did seeing the- Christopher Reeves as a giant CGI Superman. Jesus, dude. Dude, this shit got to stop, man. I mean, like, 
like I know we we talk about it an awful lot and we bitch about it an awful lot, but dude, like this shit really has got to stop. I mean, what like these things? It's embarrassing to call these things movies at this point. Like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm drawing a line at the the CGI uh, uh, recreation of dead celebrities, but for some reason I am like this is. This has gone on long enough. Somebody needs to firebomb like Disney's studios and and Warner Brothers. I, I don't know. That is that's a, parody. That's we a parody. That's encur- a joke. We are not encouraging terrorist activity. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am referring to a humorous situation in which someone might do that. <laughs> Something's got to give, man. Because I mean, obviously, obviously, people aren't even watching this shit at this point, you know. So like, you know, if there was like a market for it, it'd be like, ah, the free market wins again. It's like, dude, this movie. This movie lit a quarter of a billion dollars on fire, you know, like, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, what can you say? I don't know. Well, I'm going to watch this though, because I'm, I'm the morbid curiosity is it's too much, too much for me to handle. So I'm definitely, I'm going to watch it. I will tell you this, allow me to nerd out for a second. I'm a big fan of the flashpoint storyline. So clearly him attempting to save his mother and then realizing that no matter how he does it, that's going to fuck everything up. They do have a really wonderful moment at the end that I thought they nailed. It's the best scene of the entire movie by far where there's actually a lot there. And it affected me because I love the original storyline so much. But if you watch it as someone who doesn't probably give a fuck about what flashpoint is, they didn't earn that moment. So it will pretty much mean nothing to you. Yeah. I mean, dude, all this time travel multiverse shit, this, I mean, this shit's got to stop. I mean, you know, back in the old days, back in the old days, back in the old days, we had back to the future where Marty McFly goes back in time and he finds out that his mom is hot and she wants to fuck him. You're and really, that's, that's you're the really dating that yourself movie. this episode. Do what? You're really dating yourself this episode. You've referred to the Back to the Future, and I forgot the other thing. Oh yeah, M and M flavors, man. Yeah, coming in hot. Yeah, no, I'm an I'm an old ass motherfucker who you know the classics, man. You know, Marty McFly goes back in time, and he's just like, "Damn, my mom's hot." Uh, you know, what am I? I gotta I gotta hook her up with my nerd dad, otherwise I'm gonna disappear. And like, that's it. No more narrative. No more multiverse. That's it. His only job was to make sure that his mom and dad fuck. Other than that. Also, what than... would have been the harm in him having sex with her? Because it technically wasn't his mom yet. And also, we've seen generations of incest in the UK and 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 places in Scandinavia. So I don't see the big deal. I mean, I guess you're right. <laughs> like, I don't really have an <laughs> argument against it, I guess. You heard it here first, folks. The silver screen video is advocating Marty McFly should have had sex with his mother. It should have happened, folks. <laughs> We've taken a real 40 and slide this episode. Uh, yeah. Anyway, do you have anything to get in? Do you have anything you've watched to get into before we jump into your movies? Uh, not really. I've been watching a lot of Frasier. Shout out Frasier. Love Frasier. That's it, really. Yeah, me too. I, uh, you know, uh, there's a great episode of The Simpsons where a brother from another show comes on and Sideshow Bob has a brother and he's also voiced by David Hyde Pierce and it's really, really good. So. Oh, that's clever. Um, yeah, I, thought you had, I thought you had some kind of proclamation. Didn't you have some kind of proclamation about Nolan or something? Oh, I do. I'm glad you said that. I totally yeah. forgot. 
in in movie news that pretty much I mean it's movie news, so it's relevant to a movie podcast, but it really doesn't apply to anybody. I can't speak for both of us because I believe we will disagree on this. I have recently rewatched Interstellar from Sir mm. Christopher Nolan because he has recently been knighted, and that's not true. And <laughs> okay, all right, I uh, I think it's his best movie hands down, and I don't even think it's close. I tell you this, I may not agree with you in the sober light of day, but when I'm watching Interstellar late at night, crying at the thought that maybe humanity will make it out of this thing, I'm right there with you, brother. I, uh, I think it's very special. It's very unique. I think it's probably his, his best, his best written film. Now, mind you, I'm also a big believer that most people rank insomnia too low. Uh, most people rank insomnia too low in my opinion, which is your list. I'm not judging your list. I'm just saying my opinion. Um, also the prestige is typically ranked too high. Um, so I don't know. I think we, in my opinion, it's clear cut to me. Interstellar is his best movie and Tenet is by far his worst movie. So I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted to say that at the end watching Interstellar again for the first time, since theaters, mind you. Um, oh, shit. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, because when we did our Christopher Nolan episode, I mean, I remembered it because uh, I've done enough reading about it and all that. The, the, so I didn't need to rewatch it because I remember it beat for beat. But I wanted to put a lot of time in between it. It's very similar to how I rewatched 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, so I think it's, it's, his, it's his most contemplative work. And I was thinking when I was watching it, that a double feature with Ad Astra would be quite something to behold. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, clearly I know you disagree, and that's fine. I know a lot of our listeners disagree. I'm not saying I don't like The Dark Knight. I love The Dark Knight. Um, I'm actually, I'm not even going to say I disagree, because like for me, I mean, I think I posted a, a, a Nolan list on Twitter a while back, but I mean, you know, I don't fucking know. I wasn't really paying attention. Um. I mean, for me, Dark Knight, Dunkirk, Interstellar, Inception, they're all they're all kind of on equal footing there at the top for me. You know, those those four. Um which one moves me the most? Interstellar, no question. I mean, you know, dude, I love Interstellar. I'm actually gonna watch it now that you have brought it up. I really love that movie. Um Well, it's on Prime. Yeah, I got. I'm gonna watch it again, man. It's dude. When 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 McConaughey gets back on that spaceship and realizes that like his daughter has basically her, her his daughter's basically lived like you know 30 years of her life while he was on the planet, like who? And and oh, he man. dude dude and he's watching he's mm-hmm. watching the footage and then it goes from Timothy Chalamet to Casey Affleck. And then you realize the jump. And then it goes from Casey Affleck introducing, I mean, I don't want to spoil, but he's introducing his family to a bearded Casey Affleck looking like the guy we know from Manchester by the sea and just has this throwaway line of like, oh yeah, grandpa died last week. He's buried out back next to Jesse. And it's like, Jesse was your fucking baby, man. Like, yeah, it's, dude, it's what a, what a fucking great movie. Um, all right. Well, that's it. That was our proclamation. Nothing too crazy. Nothing too okay. zany. Dude, I like it, man. I, I like it a lot. You know, Interstellar. I mean, I mean, I like Dark Knight as much as anybody, but man, Interstellar absolutely slaps. Um, 
So yeah. Dude, if you don't like Nolan, if you don't like Christopher Nolan movies at this point, just get the fuck out of here. Come on, man. You don't like movies. I agree. I agree. Even if you think he's overrated, even if you think he's pretentious, who cares? Like the right. the the his his movies are just something that there there's something there. Just like with Jordan Pill. I don't even care that I hate it. Nope. And I thought us was a piece of shit. And get out's kind of overrated. <laughs> I don't even care. Jordan Pills, a, he's, he's, he's a fun director and you never know what he's going to do and he's creative and he's new and it's interesting and I will always be there to see a Jordan Pill movie in theaters. That will not change. Yeah, I put Cameron in that camp too of like, dude, I, he, at least the guy's making movies, man. <laughs> you know, like at least he's making big ass motherfucking movies for everybody to see, you know. Um, oh, absolutely, dude. And that's another thing. Like that was, that was my big thing with Note. It's like, I may not have liked it, but that movie was big. It was a big, mm-hmm. cool movie. They actually built the house and all that shit. That's yeah. cool, man. And the big fact movie. that he shot all those nighttime scenes, like it, it, it using lighting, like they, it was genius. I, I like it all. Like I, I don't like the movie, but I love everything about what he's doing. So yeah, I agree. If you don't like Nolan, then you must honestly not like movies. It's so sad to say that he he made it with lighting. It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, because. Crazily enough, movies aren't made with lighting anymore, folks. <laughs> They're made with computers. <laughs> well, you know what? We got to do something about computers, man. Computers are getting out of control. Well, they're going to take over the world, and I don't care. So I don't man. care what they do. I'll continue to curse out Siri when she doesn't do what I want. <laughs> so <laughs> Come and get me, Siri. Um, all right. Let's move into the main portion of our uh, nice little... Nice little kind of half hour diversion there, because you know we haven't recorded in a while. Nice to to catch up and talk about just a bunch of random shit. Um, oh, can I say real quick? Interstellar is the best because of how Kubrickian it is, and Kubrick was so much better than Hitchcock. I don't even know what else to, to add to it. See, so. why did you have to do that? Why did you? Because you attempted to under undermine my excitement for Jeff Nichols. This is payback. That's not true. That's not true. I I was moderately excited and you were mad because I wasn't as excited as you. Moderately excited means nothing to me. <laughs> Motherfucker. All right. I'm thanks for killing the mood before we move into our, our main movies here, you son of a bitch. You're welcome. Okay. All right. Um so today we're going to be talking about Jane Campion, uh, a couple of movies by Jane Campion, 1993's The Piano and 1990's An Angel at My Table. Um, this is long overdue. Um, Jane Campion, uh, made the power of the dog in 2021. I think it was both of our favorite movies. Is that right? Or maybe both in our top two or top three or something. It was, it was my favorite. I just don't remember. Um, I don't remember if it was your, is your top favorite or not. I think it might, maybe mine was number two after French dispatch, but, um, either way, uh, this is long overdue because I know there's some Jane Campion movies that neither of us had seen. And even if we have seen them, we certainly haven't talked about them on the podcast. And she is, um, you know, she's an all timer. She's, she's one of our best contemporary directors, I think. And um, yeah, so this was long overdue. Um, I mainly wanted to talk about the piano. That was kind of my first choice because I think the piano is probably her best work um, kind of rivaling power of the dog for me. And then I was trying to think of another one, uh, which would be the best. I kind of wanted to do In the Cut, but I figured maybe we should do uh, a more canonical choice. And I had never seen it before. So I chose An Angel at My Table from 1990. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of why I picked these two. 
Um, what did you think? Overview. What do you have any history with these movies or what other Campion movies have you seen? I'm kind of wildly underseen on her. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I what's am, your... I am wildly underseen as well. Hmm. Uh, I enjoyed both of these movies. I think one of them is, is better than the other one. And I think one we will get to, cause we'll probably do an angel at my table first. I believe the piano, I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, it's a bit overrated. Um, wow. Okay. I watched it. I expected to be moved by it. I was underwhelmed. So I did a lot of reading on it and come to find out there is a, I, I didn't seem I, at first I was like, well, I'm crazy. I'm just having an issue reading this movie. Cause clearly it's, it has to be something like, you know, she won an Oscar, blah, blah. Come to find out there's a decent camp out there. People that are like, yeah, it's fine. Like, you know, uh, it's, it's not, it's not as great as people say. And then I looked up who she lost, who she won against, and I will say something else that may be a bit controversial to our Jane Campion heads out there. I think Angela Bassett should have won for "What's Love Got to Do with It" over Holly Hunter's performance in this movie. Interesting. Well, you're not a Holly Hunter fan, are you? I am not, but I did not allow that to play in because I do understand the difficult nature of the character she played, which we'll get to. But overall, mm. I enjoyed this. I am going to finish out Jane Campion's filmography. I feel like I owe her that simply because of the wonderful experience I had watching Power of the Dog. Like I just, I want to finish off her filmography so I can be a Jane Campion completist. Yeah, just looking at some of her movies here, um, you know, some of the early New Zealand work, Sweetie, I've never seen Portrait of a Lady. Um in the cut I've seen, but it's been forever. And then uh, bright star in 2009, I really enjoyed, um, haven't seen top of the lake either season. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm woefully underseen. Um, let's get into an angel at my table since that's the first one. Um, this is a movie. Well, you want to read the, read your patented IMDB description. I will. I will. Um, it is uh, Janet Frame was a brilliant child as a teen was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. We explore Janet's discovery of the world and her life in Europe as her books are published to acclaim. I'll tell you this. Don't watch this movie. If you were in a good mood. <laughs> yeah, she. Um, yeah, this is very much a, uh, an, a, a portrait of the artist as a young woman uh, kind of movie um, where it just chronicles the story of you know, this writer, um, through, uh, this is the first 40 years of her life from her birth in 1924 till sometime in the 1960s. Um, the first thing I will say about this movie that I noticed is a unique lack of visual style, uh, that, you know, kind of, uh, it has been present in the other two Jane Campion movies that I know. Uh, well, in the cut, the piano and well, bright star and really every other one of her movies that I've seen, you know, kind of has this really beautiful visual style. Whereas an angel at my table really doesn't, it really is kind of just, uh, you know, paint by numbers kind of visually. Um, and apparently there's a reason for that. Um, it was originally made as a miniseries for TV. And Jane Campion originally envisioned she became uh, kind of obsessed with the story of this woman's life and wanted to make a movie about her. 
but then thought that it would be better as either a television miniseries or a made-for-TV movie. There's an interview where she talks about um, wanting people to experience this story in the kind of intimate setting that um, that you, where you're watching it solo, right? Where you're watching it alone on a TV um, or maybe with another person, as opposed to the you know public exhibition of a movie theater. Um, so really, her exhibitor kind of did her wrong and and may and theatrically released a movie that she never she didn't shoot it uh intending it to be theatrically released she shot it for television basically for a smaller screen and you know back then tvs were were square and and so on and so forth that i thought was a really really interesting perspective because with a lot of these really acclaimed filmmakers most of their movies are you know very visually extravagant whereas this one not so much i don't know what did you think about this visually before we get into kind of the the content of the story you know what i didn't I didn't necessarily have a problem or really take much of that into account simply because I'm just such a fan of how Campion tells stories. Like, and, and, mm. and I'm, it doesn't even have to be the, the, the aesthetics in terms of her visual style. You can still possess a visual language yeah, where it may not be flashy and it may not be what a lot of, when you look at these grand, almost three-hour types of movies that we've looked at, most recently probably The Deer Hunter is one of them. Like You typically want it to look grand and all that. Obviously, as you just pointed out, that wasn't the case for what she did, but you still saw the visual language that she uses that I'm a big fan of. So aesthetics, I, yeah, obviously there was nothing flashy. Didn't mind that at all. That's a really great point, though, that you bring up a really good distinction between uh, a kind of aesthetic vision and visual language, those being two different things, because there there isn't a lot of, you know, visual trickery or whatever. And I don't even mean trickery, but like, you know, power, for example, the power of the dog is shot like a classical Western, right? And thus it is very beautiful. It's shot kind of like a John Ford um, Western, uh, whereas um, an angel at my table is just, it's shot like a TV movie, but the visual language is uniquely Jane Campion in the sense that the scenes are sometimes, sometimes we come in to a scene that doesn't feel like it's beginning. It feels like it's in the middle of the scene already. And sometimes the scene ends too early. Sometimes it ends too late. It's, you know, the, the, the visual language of, and the kind of storytelling mechanisms are unique, even if the overall visual aesthetic is not particularly unique. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think that distinction that you made is really, um, is really good because yeah, this is, is it's elliptical and it is unique in its storytelling and its visual language, but not unique in its visual style. Um, but you, you and know, also, I, okay. I will say like, I don't know if this is an old fashioned take or whatever, but as we've discussed, and I'm not uh, saying this as an attempt to be, uh, amusingly argumentative about this, but I, I am a fan of of flaws in things like this, as we've discussed with the 4K, Blu-ray, DVD, VHS argument, and all that. So I think there's a there there there's something beautiful that also manages to run parallel to the the story and the flaws with what's going on in the film itself. I don't know. I really enjoyed I enjoyed those aspects of it. 
I got you. Yeah. No, let's let's break into the uh, the kind of content of this because I mean we really um, give this woman's life kind of from stem to stern. I mean it doesn't it doesn't um, obviously uh, ha- have the ending of her life, but <clears throat> we begin at the very beginning um, and then you know kind of kind of move uh, from there. What did you find interesting about this narrative? Because I mean, this is basically just a series of events that happened to this very unique woman. She's, um, you know, how would you describe her? She's eccentric. She's strange, but she's very shy. Doesn't like being around people. Um, very inward, uh, but but an artist. She, she is the kind of artist that retreats to her inner world in order to create and in order to kind of make sense of the world. Um, in a way, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. What what what's your take on this? What separates this, or maybe nothing separates it, and it's just a really good example of an artist coming of age. But um, yeah, what did you think of the narrative of 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 her and how she kind of becomes a writer and stuff? Because she deals with some fucked up shit in this movie. Well, at the expense of losing some listeners, I will say, in my experience, gingers have no souls. So <laughs> Jesus, um, <laughs> that, that could be the first issue, but if, if you ignore that and just tackle it, the material for what it is, um, I can't, in all, in all seriousness, I can't really speak to that simply because this is a, this is, this reminds me of that Edward Yang movie we watched that I really loved, hmm. um, about the Thailand, uh, murder. What was the name of that movie? Um, oh, a, another, about- a brighter summer day, brighter summer day, Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah, um, there, there is, oh yeah, I said Thailand, excuse me. There is a, um, a cultural difference there. So some of this is universal. Her getting in trouble for chewing gum and, and, and stealing the money for the gum and all that, that's universal. Some of it, however, living conditions, the way think, the way people communicate, some of that is cultural. So if you just look at what we would be familiar with, from a, from a non difference in cultural perspective, I would say, yeah, it's pretty by the numbers, but that's okay. I mean, she's a shy kid. She's obviously going through awkward phases. Um, she gets in trouble like any normal kid. And we just kind of see her as she gets older, but then that's where it gets interesting because to me, it is like what came first, the chicken or the egg type of story when it's like, did her, the way she was raised, and and what she had to go through, did that make her, or was it was it always there? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, did and she... chicken or the egg may be the wrong analogy. Perhaps it's like uh, like the the environment being made by your environment or making your environment type of thing. Yeah, nature versus nurture. I think is yeah, the, yeah. That's a better one. Yeah, that's the key. Um, yeah, no, right. Like, did did she live a weird life because of her? inner being or, um, you know, did, did living a weird life turn her into, um, an artist? I would say that Jane Campion comes out on the side of, uh, she lived a weird life because she was a unique human being. You know what I mean? I don't think, uh, determinists don't make very good artists (laughs) in a way because you have to believe in and have some faith in human nature. I, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are some people who don't believe in free will who are like good artists, but like, you know, she really focuses on uh, this woman as a, a brilliant writer and as someone who doesn't quite fit in. I mean, 
they straight up misdiagnose her with schizophrenia. Which Which is the most disturbing aspect when you look at what she went through. So what, what did you do to her that wasn't already a problem because of your misdiagnosis? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and eight years, she spent eight years institutionalized for, I mean, basically no real reason. I mean, you know, she had, um, you know, she had some issues with, you know, when she went to teacher's college and very shy, very anxious, you know, obviously she's got some, some issues, but the world around her doesn't really know how to deal with that. Right. I mean, and it, it, this begs the question, like, okay, she made it out because she was a brilliant writer. What if she wasn't a brilliant writer? You know, it's okay not to be a brilliant writer. Most people aren't, right? Like, most people aren't brilliant artists. What if you're just a regular-ass motherfucker who has these issues? It's like, well, enjoy your lobotomy, you know? Uh, Which is horrifying, you know? Um, And also, like, we get to see how it affected her life very similar to, like, ex-convicts who were trying to find a job or, like, make a change in their life, and they can't mm -hmm. because of their history. Like we saw the way that woman reacted as soon as she found out that she not only spent time there, she spent a decent chunk of time. It's like, oh no, like you're immediately disqualified for a lot of what you would like to do once people find that out. All over a misdiagnosis, fucking shock therapy. Yep. I mean, yep. it is it it was a brutal, crushing movie to watch at times. Yeah, I mean, and I, I will say this, you know, maybe transitioning into kind of the ending of it or or how it ends up. Um, and this is something Jane Campion does with her heroines often, um, or in the case of Power of the Dog, her heroes, um, uh, gives them a happy ending, which is kind of the opposite of of what you would expect. You know what I mean? It becomes kind of a... You know, obviously, those of us used to Hollywood stories, the happy ending is always the most obvious one. And that's kind of cliche, it seems like to us. But for Campion, giving her characters kind of relatively happy endings is feels like the non cliche because we we see these characters and specifically talking about the main character in Angel at My Table. We see them suffer. And the only obvious thing that can happen we see this again at the end of the piano the only obvious thing that can happen is that this the main character can finally die for their you know get sacrificed and it becomes some kind of uh um melodramatic cautionary tale and it's like no 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 no. she she turns out relatively fine like living in the trailer and she's close to her family and this is a woman who finds solace in loneliness and staying to herself, you know, doesn't like being around other people. She's, you know, to paraphrase Virginia Woolf, she's given kind of a, a room of one's own or a, a trailer of one's own in which she can create. And that's really all she's looking for in life. Um, She's discovered her kind of, you know, she's reached the point where all artists do at the end of their, you know, journey which is discovering your kind of vocation, your job, you know, and she's in this little camper, she's near her remaining family and she's, um, she's kind of made it out in a way, you know? And I, I, I think that's, uh, 
was one of my favorite aspects of the movie was that this didn't didn't end up being a you know precious style uh precious based on the novel pushed by sapphire style um uh slog of just grimness you know until the end um well clearly i don't i don't know anything about the artist but i i would have i would have assumed that it would end in some type of suicide that, sure. that my my money was on that so to find out that wasn't the case i was like oh well perfect like this isn't the best circumstance but it's the best for you that i thought you were going to get i mean <laughs> sure i mean i mean you know she she ends up being a rel- you know relatively famous artist a writer she gets to travel she gets to um you know she gets to write she gets to be in her family this is her life ended up okay you know, and that I think is that makes the movie better, in my opinion, because it's like, oh, this is she really did end up okay. Sometimes things do end up okay. Sometimes a person can suffer immensely and and end up, you know, um, okay at the end of at the end of it all. And um, yeah, I don't know. Any final thoughts on this movie? Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know. Watch this movie if you haven't seen it, guys, especially if you're just curious about Campion or maybe you, like me, you had only seen Power of the Dog and, and you're underseen on the rest of her stuff. It's on Max right now. It's not an easy watch, but it's definitely, it's a it's an interesting movie to watch to get an idea of Campion and, and her style and what the stories she wanted to tell back in 1990 kind of thing. So a younger Campion basically trying to make movies three years later, she goes on to make the piano, which is probably her biggest movie up until power of the dog, I would say. So I would definitely say so. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So let's um, let's transition. Yeah. Angel at my table. There's not really a lot more to say about it. I mean, it it is what it says, you know, what the, the kind of description, there's not a lot of complexity to it, honestly, like it's all about this character and, it's all about uh, the things that she experiences and how she she turns them into art, you know. And that's um, I don't know. It's a it's a good recipe for a movie, in my opinion. And uh, uh, Campion would return to this a little bit in Bright Star, which is about uh, the romantic poet uh, John Keats and the woman that he falls in love with. Um, similar kind of similar kind of narrative there, but anyways. Uh, moving on to 1993's The Piano. You want to get into what The Piano is about? I do, but I did want to say that clearly this was an accident, I feel certain, because I don't think you would have said something if this was the case. But uh, I was watching these movies and I realized in like two months, I'm going to be in New Zealand. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was going to bring that up for The Piano because obviously An Angel at My Table takes place in New Zealand, but... Um, the piano is really about New Zealand in a big way. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a cliche to say this, but the 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 location is the care is a character in the movie. You know. Um, yeah, and we yeah, will yeah. get to one scene, one heartbreaking scene in particular that I couldn't even laugh at, even though it was it could be misconstrued, I guess. Which I'm not going to judge anybody for laughing. It could be misconstrued for comedy, but we'll get to it. Um, Ooh, anyway, okay. um, I'll give the synopsis real quick. In the mid-19th century, a mute woman is sent to New Zealand along with her young daughter and prized piano for an arranged marriage to be to a farmer, but is soon lusted after by a farm worker. I will say this. Before I watched this movie, I was like, muted, a mute woman. This is perfect because I don't like the sound of Holly Hunter's voice. So you can imagine 
my surprise, the first thing you hear is her voice. <laughs> her voice throughout the whole movie. Um, I'll, okay, so I'll tell you this in, in, in a serious way. I'm not even joking. I don't like the voiceover. I don't know if I'm in a camp on my own. I only read one other person who agreed with that take, but I don't like it. I think mm. that she did enough herself to convey everything. She was wonderful using her expressions, using her eyes, her mouth, like those things that, that everything that becomes extra vital to you as a character in a, in a film, when you cannot speak, I thought she was great. Maybe a little bit of a voiceover, like just to kind of maybe be a little guidance, but outside of that, I could have done without it. I, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to that actually, actually. I mean, because I think to myself, like, I didn't even really think twice about the voiceover. But now that you say that, it is a bit superfluous, probably. Um, you know, but I like this movie so much. I don't, I don't really have a lot of negative to say about it. Um, let's get into that, though. What else? Is there, because um, I'm assuming there are things like, you know, like you don't like Holly Hunter's voice. But what are, what are some of the other kind of issues you have with this movie? Because the, the, the narrative is, is almost kind of simple. It's this woman, you know, goes, goes to live with her uh new zealand uh husband and um harvey Keitel, and it becomes kind of a love triangle and then obviously there's a lot more detail to it than that but that's the basic kind of structure um for anyone you know we don't want to get lost in the plot details um too much but what do you i don't know what were some of your your problems with it that 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 contributed to you not liking this one as much i really don't have a lot of problems with it if i'm being honest i just it's oh, just okay. not yeah, yeah, it's not one of those movies where like, you know, I'm not I don't even have the ability to to pick apart a movie like this. I mean, I, I know that this movie is highly regarded as one of her best and and I just it just I just it wasn't for me. Like it's just one of those movies oh, where it's like okay. I I understand the quality of the movie and I understand what she was trying to do. Um I will say that I like I said I did a lot of reading and and I and I do I don't want to tell anybody how to feel. But I do feel like I read a lot of people, a lot of things about people talking about how like predatory Harvey Keitel was and like, how was this a love story? How is it good that she ended up with him at the end? And it's like, well, I didn't care for the movie, but even I understand this was not a love story. Like if you thought this was a love story, I don't know what to tell you because I don't think it is. There's nothing, there's nothing endearing about that relationship. You know, this once again is a, it ends with her being in the best circumstance you could hope to be in being a, being in a, in a, in a country in a time in history where you were traded for something for all we know, a couple of cows, like who the fuck knows? <laughs> so I, I yeah. would, I would, I, I would mostly agree with you. I don't, I don't think this is not, this is definitely not a love story. Um, it is, it is a character portrait. I think, um, similar to an angel at my table. Um, uh, but, but I do think there is some endearing nature of their relationship because just to outline some of the plot. So, uh, Holly Hunter has an illegitimate child and I guess the guy marries her. I don't know how Sam Neill ever gets in contact with her, but somehow he just marries her and she, She's like, all right, I'm going to New Zealand and and I'm marrying this guy who I've never met before. I don't know how that works, but, um, and she has a piano that she plays. She's mute. She doesn't talk. 
Um, she has a piano that she plays as kind of a, you know, self, a, a mode of self-expression. Um, and uh, he uh, doesn't, because obviously this piano is hard to fucking move, uh, you know, and so he trades the piano um, to uh, Harvey Keitel's character in exchange for piano lessons um, and some land. And uh, so, yeah, Harvey Keitel is learning the piano from Holly Hunter's character and he is tells her he'll give her the piano back to her um, if she performs, you know, 52 sexual favors. Right. Based on how many keys there are on the piano. Yeah. And so obviously this relationship starts out very predatory um, and very realistic, probably to how things went back then. But I do think it turns into something different. And I don't think that I think there's a miscon there's a misconception that portrayal of something bad eventually turning into something good means that oh i guess that something bad wasn't bad after all if it turned into something good it's like no no that's fucking baby brained right yeah harvey Keitel is a predator at the beginning of this but he has a change of heart like it's it's a fucking movie right like a character's change and he has a change of heart and he starts to loathe himself for doing this and she falls in love with him not because he's some kind of paragon of masculine virtue or whatever but she falls in love with him because she's sexually attracted to him right which i think is very important right like it's it's a very important plot point this is not some kind of true love and harvey keitel is going to save her from sam neil it's like no, no no harvey keitel is barely a better person than sam neil but the difference is Holly Hunter is fucking turned on by Harvey Keitel and his Maori tattoos, right? And her her desire of him is a key aspect of this movie. Um, and it's not. Does that make sense? Like it's. It, I feel like to be like, oh, it's this is this is acting like uh, acting like it's a real love story. It's like no, you're missing the point. Like the 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 story is much more nuanced than that. You know? Does that make sense? It does. But I mean, if I was her, I would. Much rather have Sam Neill, a well-to-do, wealthy, nice-looking man over Harvey Keitel. Come on, I'd, I'd take Sam Neill. Oh, I mean, all day, every day. But you know, I mean, this is <laughs> this is the desires of gay men versus uh, straight women. You know, I mean, what you can't tell them nothing. You know, I'll tell you this: I thought he was going to chop her hand off. So when he yeah. just chopped her finger off, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm surprised and pleasantly surprised by this. I know. Yeah. The finger's not that bad. I mean, and she gets the metal finger at the end, you know, it's, uh, you know, there are worse fates, you know, losing a hand. Um, but I, I do agree with what you're saying though. Clearly. Like I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I shouldn't have said it's lacking any of, of those elements of, of what would be a love story, but it definitely, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's an unethical beginning to, lands and like i said before the one of the better positions she could have been in hopefully she can find some she found some form of love to where it's like you can just kind of live out your days and and hopefully be happy not be abused you know the little things in life no but you're you you bring up a great point which is that the love story quote unquote this is not a love story The the quote unquote love story is incidental to the main thing of this movie which is uh, the kind of um, uh, what this woman deals with in her life, right? If it was a love story, Harvey Keitel would be her great savior. 
who would take her away at the end of the movie. And it's like, no, he's not a savior. He's just the less, the least bad man I can be around right now. You know, like, oh yeah, definitely the lesser of two evils. Right, the lesser of two evils. Like it's, it's, you know, this is not. We're living in an adult world, right? It's not the movie's not going to hold your hand and, and be like, "This is very bad and this is good." You know, it's like that. Nah, sometimes there's shit in between. There's a grown-up movie, you know. Um. Anyways, uh, I, I think you know I love this movie. I think this movie is 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 really really powerful, and I think this is one of the. Uh, to go a step further, I will say you know this is a very and and you can get caught up in a million different things by calling movies like woke or whatever and stuff but this is a very plainly feminist and anti-colonial movie right and it doesn't suffer from the facts right it doesn't suffer from those facts those those themes are incidental to the main core of this movie right they're they're features um and it's not like some kind of preachy thing it's no this is what a this is what a woman would experience in this situation right um and it's also, I think, very, very much about New Zealand and very much about the taming of New Zealand, right? I mean, this is the portrayal of the natural world is very interesting in this movie. It's dark. It's there's this kind of blue, you know, grimy hue to everything, and it's they're they're trekking through mud, and it's it's like the opposite of like Terrence Malick's The New World, right? This is a this is a difficult land. Uh, almost an absurd place to want to be and go. This is a hard place to live. And it's even that much harder when you're going to try to go and recreate uh, an English, you know, countryside manner uh, in the middle of this New Zealand jungle. It's like, dude, this is, this is fucking stupid. Who thought of this? You know, like <laughs> who thought to do this? Like what you, you British people are insane to just be, go to this like insane wild land and be like, yeah, let's set up England too, right here, you know? Um, and I, I think that that's a huge part of the thematics of the movie. I don't know. What did you make of that? Well, I mean, just, you know, just to kind of, this isn't part of the movie necessarily, but you would think they, they would have learned their lesson in Australia. Mm-hmm. So it's like the fucking Brits. I don't understand their their incessant need to try to tame this wild land where it's like outside of the uh, thankfully there's not as much dangerous wildlife in New Zealand, if any. But it's like you this is the same shit, basically, guys. If anything, it's just farther away. Like, I don't understand the 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 push like this movie did not make it look fun to want to be like, man, I want to go there and plant my flag and and take over. It's like, no, this this it's it's like this fucking bullshit like that 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 is also the secondary nature of this movie that i also that i found much more interesting than the primary storyline is just the way it tackles colonialism the way it mm. tackles that that injustice that the scene that i was referring to earlier i did want to touch on that it can be humorous i guess but i didn't i was like too I don't know, taken aback to kind of make it humorous just because of how disturbing I thought it was because of the people. But when they're watching the play mm. and and the guy, you know, the, the on stage, there's there's heads hanging on walls with blood running down. And clearly it's just women standing behind sheets with their head through it. And this woman gets caught by the by the villain and and he's going to murder her. And 
the the Maori tribesmen like jump on stage. They're like, taste my club, like in their language. They're going to mm-hmm. fucking murder this guy because they think this guy's about to kill this woman. And then they have to, then the, the scene cuts to them explaining to them, no, see, they're standing behind sheets and this and that. And I was just like, I watched that scene and I couldn't even laugh at even the idea of them thinking the play was real mm-hmm. because of how sad the whole ordeal was. Did you yep. get that feeling or no? hundred percent, man. It's, it's something that could have been played for laughs, but it's not in the movie. Like it, it, it's like, okay, throw away any morality to it, right? Throw, throw away morality and politics, right? Like, is it right or wrong to go set up England too in the middle of New Zealand? Throw complete, throw all that completely out, right? It is a fundamentally absurd proposition to go to a foreign land and to try to impose your values on them. Again, I said absurd, not immoral. It is, it is immoral. We all know that, right? But from the point of view of this movie, the movie doesn't preach and go, look how immoral this, this is. The movie is portraying how absurd and impossible this is, right? You, you, you can't go... To a, I mean, think about how absurd that is. Going to a bunch of Maori tribesmen who have developed in complete isolation from the rest of humanity and then being like, look, here's a theater play. Like, you, you talk about going back to first principles. You'd have to go back to, okay, what's a theater? Oh, it's like where people go on and act like real life. Okay, what's real life? What do you mean fake? What does that mean? What, what do you mean by own? What, is that, what does that word mean? You know, like... You have to go back to you can't go far back enough to 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 like completely uh, show these people how you want them to live. You know, setting aside the fact that that's deeply immoral, it's also fundamentally absurd and stupid. You know, you just can't do it. You know, the only way you can subject a country is by brute force. You'd be better off just going in and killing everybody. You know what I mean? Like it. That would be a much better solution, you know, just going and fucking that's what we did over here, you know, essentially. And like, um, I think that's a huge, important part of the movie. It doesn't portray it as, oh, these guys are evil. But no, it's a fundamentally stupid and absurd endeavor to try to transplant. um, I mean, I don't know how old is England at this point, you know, 800 years of English history and values and just like ship it to. Well, it's just I just landed on the central metaphor of the movie. Ship it on a and have it land on a beach like a piano. You know what I mean? Like, and then be like, "All right, let's let's do it. Let's do England over here too." It's it's the the insanity of the of the colonial empire project and the absurdity of it is a huge huge sub theme to this movie. I think. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really glad you pointed that out because it it should play for laughs, but it doesn't. You look at those Maori tribesmen and their confused faces. Of course they're confused. They don't have a fucking clue what you're doing. You don't have a clue what they're doing. You know, like, yeah. Anyways, I, I really love that about the movie. I'm glad you pointed out that scene. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, what, what infuriates me about it, just to add on to what you said before we, before we get out of here, is the fact that it's so self-entitled like, why does that culture matter to them on any type of practical matter? Mm. Like, on any type of practical... Like, when, when we watch these movies about colonialism, we, we, we're civilizing this, this wild land where we're taming the savages, whatever fucking phrase you want to use. It mm. all boils down to imposing values that you think 
should run the world. Mm-hmm. And that has nothing to do with these people. And I think that's really was what infuriated me about the play scene is the fact yeah. that this play doesn't fucking mean anything. Like you assholes are just watching this shit to entertain yourself. And that's fine. We watch shit to entertain ourselves every fucking day, but that's not the case here with these people when they thought somebody was really in danger. And then you're going to explain it to them like they're a child yes. and you're just going to think you're in the right. You're going to think, Oh, look at that. I just educated these savages. It's like, get the fuck out of here. No, you got to understand it's fake. It's like, why do they have to understand that? Like, why do they have to be exposed to it to then have to be explained that it's fake? Right, right. All, all you're doing is, it's so obvious, all you're doing is just causing trouble for everyone, including yourself, not least of all yourself, for taking on this, uh, frankly, stupid project, you know, and doomed to fail, which I guess at the end it didn't fail, um, because, you know, New Zealand is now a Western nation. Um but it took a lot of bloodshed. You know what I mean? Like those Maori guys just didn't lay down their spears and go, Oh, this is better. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, it's not like they were like, Oh man, I would much rather come watch plays. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is sick. Look what we've been missing out on. These people are pretending to be dead. You know, like what did you think was going to happen? But anyways, yeah, that's, but, but I do think that is a very, very important aspect of this movie. Um, uh, because it is, it, it's also kind of embodied in this main character, right? I mean, she's brought to this land and uh, expected to thrive. Like, uh, like that's also part of the movie. What is Sam? Like, what do you fucking expect her to do, Sam Neil? Obviously, he expects her to have sex with him. Okay, that's obvious. But like, what else? What What are you planning on doing? Even, you know what I mean? You're gonna build a house. Okay, what then? You're just gonna live there for? I mean, why? You know, like it's it's yeah i mean at least harvey keitel that's one of the things that harvey keitel's character is kind of you know kind of at least he's trying to play along with at least he's trying cultural assimilation you know at least he's trying to play along with the rules of the game as they are in new zealand right at least he's not trying to bring you know his uh his dressing table and his teacups you know, and, and trying to civilize the savages, at least he's trying to play along, you know? Um, oh, yeah, Sam Neill was a total moron in this movie. I don't I don't even know what purpose he was fucking serving. Right, like, what are you What are you doing here? And But see, and he, I'm sure he th- thought he was, you know, the big, great pioneer or whatever, and it's like, dude, I don't, yeah. Anyways, I, I love this movie. I think it's one of the most important movies about colonialism, probably alongside, uh, alongside uh, Claire Denis' Beau Travail. Um, and I also think it's a really important story about women and what they have to deal with and how, and I think this is the link that binds these two. This is the last thing I'll say. The link that combines these two movies is these two women who have to resort to the interior world of the self in order to make it through. Right. Um, and that's what I think is really important because, you know, at the end of the movie, she tries to kill herself, but her will to live is too strong for that. She doesn't want to kill herself. But then in the end, she still fantasizes about killing herself and thinks about how romantic it would have been for that piano to be her coffin at the bottom of the ocean, right? The point is, she has freedom of thought. She has found a place of interior freedom uh, that she didn't have in the outside world, similar to the way the author did in An Angel at My Table. And I think that is the core of these movies a person trying to carve out for themselves a little slice of solemnity and solitude amidst a very cruel 
uh, world that's outside of them. You know, I, and I think that's an important part of Jane Campion's entire project and filmography, and obviously a very important part of these two movies. Um, so yeah, man, any last words on the piano or Campion? Not really, except for I will be completing her filmography. I want to get the full vision of, of what she's doing. And uh, so far, clearly I think Power of the Dog is her best movie that I've watched so far. I don't expect that to change, but uh, either way, it was a pleasure watching these two in terms of just watching a master like kind of hone her craft in these early days. So, And also now we know the difference, because I always confuse these movies. We know the difference between the piano and the piano teacher, where that crazy woman uh, puts glass in that kid's jacket. <laughs> Which is still one of the greatest scenes in any movie I've ever seen. Oh, dude. I, I mean, tell people about that scene so often, and they're always horrified. And it's like, you don't get it. Dude, <laughs> it's like the Joker. It's like the Joker. You wouldn't get it. It's Yeah, it's like, dude, you can't fuck with Michael Haneke for, like, shocking stuff. Like, he will put... He'll put any horror director like out on the street with that shit, man. It's like the original funny games. Like I don't even rewatch that movie. I can't, I won't like, yeah, no, you can't, you can't fuck with Haneke when it comes to shocking the audience with, you know, violence and terror. Um, but I, I I do want to, I do want to leave you though. This little, this little tidbit. I'm a big fan of Oscar history. Whenever I remember to look it up, typically I don't, but this one caught my attention. Did you know Holly Hunter won for this movie? Clearly. But did you know she was nominated for Best Supporting Role that year as well in The Firm? Ooh, I didn't know that. That's here's interesting. Where, here's where it gets really interesting, though. Emma Thompson was nominated in Best Actress Leading Role for The Remains of the Day. Emma Thompson mm. was also nominated in Best Actress in a Supporting Role for In the Name of the Father. Oh, wow. How crazy is that? So two different people took up two different slots. And it's main to, categories. It's like two women taking up forty percent of the uh, of the nominations for, for women. That's crazy. Nineteen ninety three. I mean, that's that's the 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 female and the period, the woman in the period piece. You know, you really could just get nominated for anything. You know. Well, I also learned Anna Paquin is an Oscar winner. I had no idea she won for this movie. So she was the uh, she's the second youngest actor to win an Oscar, I believe. Yeah, yeah, because isn't the first one? Uh, was it Drew Barrymore or somebody? No, no, else? no. The first one, the, the youngest is um, what's her name? Little Miss Ab- Sunshine. Abigail Breslin. I don't know why yeah. I thought. Yeah, I don't know why I thought Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and and Campion won Best Original Screenplay for this. Also, she was the first woman to ever win the Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, which is also uh, an enormous achievement. So, oh, look yeah, at shout that. out, shout out, Campion. We got all kind of little tidbits for you guys. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I got. Guys, you got a little, get a little bit of a longer episode this week since we missed last week. And I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Let us know uh, your thoughts on Campion and these two movies. Also, let us know if you like The Flash. Let us know if you're a fan of The Baby in the Microwave. I'd really like to know. So, Actually, hold off on that for now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Message us on Twitter and let us know if you did or didn't like the scene with the baby in a microwave. By the way, you're saying microwave very strangely. Microwave? Why do you want me to say it? You you say it very quickly and it sounds like you're saying microwave. You know what? I'm not going to tolerate this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You said it one more time and I couldn't I couldn't move past it.
a baby in the microwave. There, I'm sorry if I'm not. I'm sorry if I'm not uh, enunciating enough for you, Your Highness. I mean, dude, you were zooming past that motherfucker. You were just like microwave. <laughs> well, listeners, how about this? Don't tell me if you think I say microwave strangely because I don't want to know. <laughs> oh, also anyway. Ferrari trailer. Speaking of zooming by, Ferrari trailer. Um, yeah. What are you going to do? I mean, I'll dude, watch it because it's my. I, don't you I'll watch fucking, it because it's Michael Mann and I love Michael Mann. Don't you feel. You don't, you don't love Michael Mann. I love Michael Mann. <laughs> well, I mean. You like one of his worst movies, so I don't know where to tell you. All right, we're not doing this. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Guys, Miami Vice is streaming on Max, soon to be pulled. Don't rush to watch it. Anyway, oh uh, you got anything to add before we get out of here? I do not. That's not Miami Vice related? No. Perfect. Guys, we'll see you next week at the Silver Screen Video.